You're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast, the official channel for faith and life topics at PursueGod.org. Join us every week as we explore new topics from a biblical perspective. All right, well, it's Tuesday, and that means it's time for another deep topic with Dr. Sati and Devadas. Last week, if listeners, if you missed what we talked about with math and mystery and God, make sure to go back and listen to last week's topic. But Sati, thanks for joining us again. Today, we're going to talk about math and beauty, and I want to promise the listeners we're going to get to God, we're going to get to the Bible, but you might have to hang in there a little bit, because one of the smartest people in the whole world is going to talk us through Math and Beauty, and Sadi, you wrote an op-ed piece for the LA Times a while back called, We Learn to Love Math When We Realize It's Not Meant to Be Useful. Let's talk about utility versus beauty. The reason for writing that article, or just thinking about so many of these things from a mathematical perspective, so I want to be really careful that I'm, that the audience hears me as a mathematician, is, uh, is the fact that as a mathematician and a teacher, there are... There's so many students who are falling behind during the COVID times as to how much math they were getting in, in the classroom, especially over Zoom. And math was already a tough subject as it was, a tough sell for students. And so the concepts being so abstract. And with COVID, it even made it even worse. There's kind of a depression of, of emotions that students were facing and math just compounded it. And, and the big push that I heard from parents and even from some educators was the usefulness of math in their lives. Hmm. People would say, for example, let's, let's take somebody who, who almost everybody here knows, Elon Musk, right, whose name is in the news all the time. Elon Musk would say, hey, you know what, take a lot of math, because if you do it, then you can, you can help me launch a ship to Mars. Scientists in the COVID world will be saying, hey, learn a lot of math, because if you do it, then you can help us figure out how COVID-19 really works. And maybe that could help us with something like cancer or Alzheimer's and knock some big obstacles out of the path. Architects would say, hey, learn a lot of math, because with it, we can you know, build these amazing structures that didn't exist before. And there's all of this usefulness of math that kept pushing parents from the business world from the tech world, from the medical world, into pressuring their kids to need to know math. And it turns out from the mathematician's point of view, I have never been interested in the usefulness of math. Mm. This is kind of weird because uh, it feels like math is useful in so many ways, but to me what really is the compelling reason I do math is because it's simply beautiful. And the danger of us talking about the usefulness of math is it points our students away from math. So let me give you an example. If I'm talking about learning math in order to put somebody on Mars, the student is now more interested in Mars than math. If I'm talking about how great math could help me cure cancer, you're all of a sudden interested in biology than math. We keep selling our students the wrong thing. We keep selling our kids and our cousins and our nephews the wrong thing. If we keep talking about how beautiful these other things are, then you're actually undermining the power of what math really is, which is a thing of beauty on its own. Because, because let me see if I can summarize it. Because basically what you're saying is math is only useful as far as it is, sorry, math is only valuable 
as far as it is useful to us. Yes. And so utility is driving the thing. Yes. And then actually the beauty of math gets lost along the way. Exactly. Not only does the beauty of math get lost along the way, but you're actually changing the focus from math to something else. Mm. So the moment you keep talking about pizza and the greatness of how math could help you make a better pizza, every student in my classroom is now thinking about pizza. They're not thinking about math anymore. They're like, man, can't wait to hold my nose and drink this math poison you're giving me just so I can go have great pizza and make mm. great pizza. And so math is now a negative thing that they have to put up with rather than a thing of beauty on its own. Okay, so let me connect this to God for a second. Again, we're going to do this more explicitly here at the end of our talk today because I want to stay in the realm of math, but I want to make sure to connect this for people who are listening. I think that's exactly what American Christianity tends to do with God is they say God is God is valuable only as much as he's useful for your life, mm. for your marriage, for your finances, for right? prosperity gospel. This is exactly what prosperity gospel is. It's not yeah. about God. It's not about worshiping God, the yeah. beauty of God. It is about God can get you this thing. You should follow God because he can get you this thing. And that's super dangerous in the world of, I see, I hear your passion around math, but Saudi, no offense, who cares about math? It really matters. It really matters when you do this with God, right? And we'll make sure to get back to that here in just a little bit. But that's really why we're talking about this. And I love that math, once again, is a great metaphor for this. So let's go back to something we talked about in the last episode, Saudi, that the usefulness of twin primes. So talk about that twin primes conjecture again. And then the question is, in what way is twin primes useful, right? When people think about mathematics that have been solved... I'm talking about old school, like the Pythagorean theorem, or even relatively newer things like theories of chaos theory and, um, and wind turbulence and how air flows and all of these kind of different ideas of recent uh, Navier-Stokes equations and Black-Scholes, the way the stock market can be analyzed, like really beautiful, powerful things. The solved things make sense in so many ways because it's trickled down into society. People now can see, oh, I see that a Pythagorean theorem is useful. That's how, that's how you can maybe line up things against a wall when you're an architect and figure out where things are. But what's the point of twin primes? Twin primes, from our conversation last time, Bri, is we know prime numbers, uh, five is a prime number because you can't break it into pieces. Six is not a prime number because you can break it into two times three. But prime numbers... Uh, turns out to be there are infinitely many of them, and that's an old classic result, and it's really easy to understand. And the big unsolved puzzle, the thing that nobody still knows about is, are there primes that come really close together right next to each other, like 5 and 7, they're primes, and they're literally away from one even number. Uh, 11 and 13 are primes, and they're right next to each other. Do those go on forever? And if you think about this, first of all, one might even ask, what's the point of prime numbers? It turns out that prime numbers are incredibly useful to encrypt your data. When you swipe your Visa card or your MasterCard, the way it works is prime numbers are multiplied and divided. It's really powerful. So then one can say, okay, okay, you've convinced me there, but what's the point of twin primes? And it turns out it's really not useful. That's not the point. In fact, if you ever want to build something mathematically or through number theory or the National Security Agency, the NSA, you can always pretend the twin prime conjecture is true and then just build it. It's fine. And nothing's not really going to break the system. It, but the beauty of mathematics, the reason people are crazy about twin primes, 
is not because it's useful, but to a sense, it's useless. You get to see mathematics raw, without shades, without kind of an ulterior motive for why you're doing those kind of things. And Brad, the comment that you made about God and, and math a little bit, like, hey, Sadi, I know you're getting excited about math, but you know, I want to talk about God. To me, I don't see a disconnect with it too much. And what I mean by that is, if God is the creator of all, including the creativity of our minds, then for us to kind of be a playful reflection of his image, he is a creative God who has allowed us to co-create with him. He, he talks to Adam and Eve and says, hey, partner with me in taking care of this world. Hey, you guys get to go and creatively name the animals. And as we know in the Old Testament scripture, in the Jewish world, naming something is giving it value, giving it meaning, and being playful in it. And so to me, mathematics is almost a facet of this, this huge thing, this huge idea of what God is. And the playfulness of sharing and exploring his beauty of who he is, the only way I can kind of scratch at that surface is for me to play with math. Now, I know our listeners are sitting here saying, this guy's a math professor. He sounds more like maybe an art professor because you're talking about playfulness and design and creativity. And that's kind of the point, right, is that you really view math differently. I know when we were first in college together, we, the, the, the options were pure math or applied math. And I know the pure mathematicians would say, in fact, our, one of our professors, most influential professors, would she was like, pure math is where it's at. And, um, and so pure mathematicians would say, we do math for math's sake. We don't do math mm. for utility's sake. We don't do math for the application. That, that like ruins math. Not that math doesn't end up applying like the prime number thing. When prime numbers were discovered, credit cards didn't even exist. So encryption wasn't in anyone's mind. It just That's right. it, tends, it tends to be that when you do math for math's sake, it eventually ends up having applications that you couldn't even have dreamed of. Exactly. But, but you sound more like, a, like an art-minded person than a math-minded person. Yeah, this... This notion of pure and applied and art is all blended in, in in an interesting way. You know, I let's just talk about the art first, just a little bit, and we'll maybe come back to it, Brad. But when I when I kind of sat down as a as a professor, I was at Williams College in the East Coast uh, for a long time, and I was asked to think about all the different disciplines that we offer as a college. You know, um, what kids can major in, what kids can minor in. If you think about, you know, history to poli sci to econ to art, art history, music, you know, the whole spectrum, bio and physics. People used to kind of put math on one end of the spectrum. Uh, you know, the, the pure cerebral, not related to humanity. You know, you're just in the clouds. You're just thinking about these abstract ideas uh, and very disembodied. And then kind of as you walk down this thing, the art is on the other end of the spectrum where math might be really useful and the artists are just, you know, I'm just thinking of the color blue. Why? Um, you know, like this is in floating in their own clouds, but just the most useless kind of a thing. And this happens, you know, to, to parents about how they want to make sure their kids get into the more science-y thing so there's more usefulness to their careers. But the more I thought about this, I realized that that could be true from the major or minor you get at college, but not from the people teaching them. 
from the academic sense, from the professor sense, like what it means to be a physicist and what it means to be an economist and what it means to be a historian, it turns out almost everybody is plugged in to the world. Like a historian cares about things of history. An economist cares about things of the economy. A physicist cares about physical things. But a mathematician and an artist don't care about anything. We're just mm. playing, right? So when we talk about prime numbers, mathematicians aren't interested in how useful they are. We just, what if it goes to infinity, right? We're just kind of asking these weird questions. How many infinities are there? Dude, who cares, man? I can't even get to one. You know, how many infinities do you want me to get to? And we're just in the clouds playing this thing. And an artist is thinking the same thing. You know, I wonder what happens if I take, you know, can you, if you imagine an artist as a musician, like John Coltrane's compositions in jazz, and then I take it to Beyonce's work, and then I mix it into some artistic creativity of Taylor Swift's music video. Like, what do I get if I take the... And then somebody goes, well, dude, who cares, man? We're trying to solve cancer. We're trying to put somebody in Mars, or we're trying to come up with this new idea that's going to help humanity in this way to, to stop the war in Ukraine. And you're talking about jazz compositions? It feels absolutely useless. And to me, that notion of math and art are identical when it comes to rubber meeting the road of how mathematicians think. We think so much like artists. So are we saying that it's wrong to look for application? Are we saying that it's wrong, like that, <clears throat> that it's wrong to think of math as a useful thing or think of art as a useful thing? Are we saying that it's wrong to think about the ends justifying the means, right? That, that curing cancer, wait a second, curing cancer is a great thing. I want to use math to cure cancer, maybe help us understand that again, because we're going to connect this back to God as well, yeah. but help us to understand that in terms of even just math and applied math and pure math. Yeah, I think the the notion of, of wanting to cure cancer is phenomenal, but to say that that is the way to get our students, going back to our conversation before, Bri, that's the way to get our students excited about mathematics. That's the way to get my daughter. That's the way to get my niece or nephew. That's the way to get myself excited about mathematics, because I got to finish this degree. That to me is the dangerous part, right? There's a difference between the ends of wanting to do these things. But then the moment I'm thinking of curing cancer, I'm in love with cancer as something I wanna be an obstacle for. And the beauty of what cancer is really doing, it's this funny thing that's, that's kind of growing and multiplying in its own way. Maybe we can harness the evil and make it into good, right? You kind of fall in love with cancer for what it is and mathematics becomes a tool. To me, that's the red flag. If you're trying to get somebody excited, great. Let them get excited about cancer. That's a beautiful thing to try to knock out of the park. But make sure you don't use math as a way to do that because then math is just a hammer you're going to pick up, right? And so if you're trying to put somebody on Mars, that's great. But make sure you don't talk about math as the way to get them excited because math is just a hammer. But if you want to talk about mathematics, things like the twin prime conjecture, things like the playfulness of not having restrictions on you is beautiful. So, Brad, let me give you an example. One of the closest disciplines that, that's related to math, in fact, they kind of came from each other in some sense, is physics. Right? If you think of Isaac Newton, if you think of Einstein, you know, you could see like math equations on the wall when these guys are playing with stuff. But all of them, both Einstein, Newton, and every physicist there is, is bound by the laws of physics they still have to play the physics game, right? Like there's gravity and you have to figure out what gravity is and how to mitigate the rules of it and be bound by it. Math, we don't have gravity. I could just make up 
anything I want and I can get to play with it. And the rules of this world don't apply to me. In fact, we make up our own rules. There's algebraic structures like group theory and ring theory where each of them are its own rules. Oh, I'm just going to have these as my elements in my group. Why? Oh, I just want it. Right? You can just make up your own stuff. So this playfulness of what you can do is the echoing in the playfulness of what an artist can do. And just as an encouragement to those who are listening, you know, if you feel like, man, I've always been artistic in my bent, I always want that creativity in my life that, that I felt that I could just do what these things um, that are bound, and I kind of want to paint outside the, the colors and the boxes given to me in my paint, you know, paint, in my paint kit. I feel like if that is you, you might actually be crazy about math. That mm -hmm. math is really not about a set of rigid rules you have to follow. But it's about painting, not paint by numbers, but just you just get to play as much as you want to. And figuring out what some of these unsolved problems are might be a pointer to seeing where you can play. I could hear some of our listeners saying, I don't know what math you're talking about, Sadi, because <laughs> the only math I know is very much rules, right? I mean, what you just described about ring theory and making your own rules up and kind of this, uh, this imaginary land. Yeah. that you're describing. Yes. Honestly, Sadi, that's something that really, even only you fully experienced the, f the more you were in it. You know, last yes. time we talked about math and mystery, and every time you solve one problem, yes. there, there are 10 more problems you now understand that you might have. And so even in your own journey, um, I, I think it's helpful for people to know this. And th again, this does have an application, by the way, yeah. to, to Scripture and to God. Yeah. But even in your own journey, early on, math wasn't necessarily so playful for yeah. you. A lot of that really was, we've got bound, we're doing arithmetic, now we're That's doing right. algebra, now we're doing That's calculus. Right. And all of those worlds have rules and structures and That's like right. the law of gravity. That's but right. the, the more you explore it really is part of what we're saying, right? The more you've explored it, because you didn't talk like this when we were in college. That's right. You, you've, you've discovered this after decades of really understanding math at a whole different level, a level that most people never will understand it. And, and I think it's important for people to hear that is the more you hang in there and explore something, because again, we, I, we do see this incredible connection between your study of math and anyone's study of God. The more you explore it, it's, it's, it really is, you begin to understand the beauty of it at a yes. whole new level. Well, I think one of the, you're, you're absolutely right, Bri, but I think one of the callings as a teacher is exactly to do this. So I'm wearing two hats, right? I'm wearing one hat as a mathematician who creates things. I am in the field making up new things with my toys in my hand. But at the same time, I'm a math professor. I'm not just a mathematician, I'm a math professor. So I'm professing my love and what I'm doing to the next generation and you know to audiences that job is different than a creator's job. That job is to invite somebody who's anywhere in the world, sitting next to me on a bus or on a long plane ride where they actually can't switch seats. That's my best. That's my favorite spot. I just, you just got them cornered for a whole, whole east to west coast ride. And then, you know, at that point, you, your job as a teacher is to bring them to where you are. Now, of course, they don't have the power to play as much as you do. But the goal of a teacher is to excite the goal of a teacher is to invite, and the goal of a teacher is to, is to lift the veil up so you can see a little bit of that glory and that beauty. And you're right, Brian. When I was in college, you know, we certainly had great teachers, right, who did point us to the way that 
both you and I and your brother, all of us, went to grad school in math. So clearly, they pointed us enough to say, not only is it beautiful, but keep going. And we did. We all did that stuff. To me, the main switch happened when I was doing my PhD program. My first two years were really hard. We went to a school that was a good school, but it didn't prepare us. You know, not a lot of kids from our school were all going into grad school. It wasn't a feeder school for graduate programs. So when we got there, when I got there, certainly my first few years, I was just completely underwater. And I was barely struggling. And, uh, and going back to the discussion last time, it was the community around me and the diligence of your faithfulness, but also the brothers and sisters around you that kind of kept us floating as, hey, push through, man, because a lot of other people have gone through this thing. But my third year, when I got to play with my own toys, oh my gosh, that was phenomenal. And one of the jobs as a teacher that I really want to do is to show that. And it's, it's hard to do that over a conversation like this when we're covering a lot of big ideas around it. But, but I think one of the goals as a parent or as, a, as an aunt or an uncle or as a friend or a brother or sister, one of our jobs is to teach and to guide those around us. And so my point is to make sure that mathematics is not something we, we push away because we think it's only rigid rules, but we actually start inviting and exploring because of its beauty. I think going back to history or going back to political science or economics, every one of those things has rules, right? You just can't do whatever you want with history. There are rules to how you study history, and there are rules to how you think about God. You know, you just can't pretend, I'm going to start God from a blank slate. There are these ideas of how people have wrestled with these ideas, you know, with these big thoughts, capital B, big, capital Q questions about who we are. And let's take that wisdom and go from it and learn from it. Yeah, this reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says this. He says, when we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. And, you know, Paul was a guy who, man, it's so similar to what you're talking about, Sadi. Paul was a guy who, as a, as a Pharisee, had this, this very linear understanding, this very bounded understanding of God and his rules. And, you know, it came from the Old Testament. It came from the Pharisees had truth, they had Scripture, but they didn't really understand it. So Paul, I, I think... Paul would see God as a Pharisee. His name was Saul. Saul saw God Pharisaically. He saw him as this just rule giver God, this lawgiver God, but he didn't really know the beauty of God. And mm. then he meets Jesus and he experiences kind of this next level yeah. understanding of who God really is. It's like it's like his understanding is unbounded now, yeah. really. And he begins to understand this in a different way, the mysteries of God, like he talks about early in 1 Corinthians 2. But yeah. he says in verse 14, but people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Now, he's not talking about, like, religious. He's, he's basically saying... He's basically saying in these in these verses that God has to open your eyes to the beauty of God, mm. and that's really something I think our listeners need to understand. You know, because Sadi, you might be on the plane and you've got someone trapped in the seat next to you, but you can talk till your face is blue, and it they might not necessarily buy into what you're saying, and and that's just a human conversation that's going on around the beauty of math. Mm. When it comes to talking to somebody, for those listeners who are trying to share their faith. We've all probably experienced this. 
when it comes to talking to someone about the beauty of God. Like, no, it's more than just the rules. It's more than just A, B, C, one, two, three, four, five. It's more than just the 10 commandments. It's, it's everything in between the 10. It's, it's not just the, the, the integers. It's all the, it's all the real numbers in between one and 10. It's, it's an infinite amount of truth that, you know, God is just trying to give us like this discrete, what are the top 10? Let me see. Let me give you these. But that doesn't cap, that can't capture God. It's not, it's not that, it's not that practical or utilitarian. God is beautiful. There's a beauty to God. And so many times parents or disciple makers are trying to express that to somebody and you're like, why aren't you getting it? I, yeah. Why why can't you get this the way that I get it? Well, what Paul tells us is because if, they, if the Holy Spirit doesn't open their eyes to the truth, they're not going to get it. You know, Jesus talked about the parable of the soils. We, the, the beauty of that parable is that the farmer sows the same seed but it, it's received differently depending on the soil. Mm-hmm. And we can't control the soil. Yeah. Just like you as a math professor, you can't control the soil of the hearts of your students yeah. to really grab a hold of the beauty of math like you've grabbed a hold of it. And in the same way, when we're trying to help people to understand who Jesus is, the beauty of God, we can't fully control it. There's even more mystery to that. Yeah, I agree. I agree, Brian. Going back to one of the things you said about you know Paul, Saul becoming Paul, and uh, and understanding God's beauty differently in his new journey, it just reminds me of Jesus as a teacher. You know, if you look at just the the writings, the Jewish writings, they are incredibly beautiful as works of literature. I think we could talk more about this uh, maybe in a, in a follow up conversation. But you know, just as a work of literature, as as mystery of, of the Book of Job to the Book of Psalms to the Ten Commandments to the creation epic to Moses, to know him. I mean, it's just ridiculously amazing. And Paul saw it in a certain way. And we see in scripture that, you know, Jesus comes along on the on the road to Emmaus and he takes the same scripture. And as a teacher, people go, wait, what? <laughs> like, that's what it's taught, you know? And he is just able to see where the rule and reign of the Messiah happens. And even, you know, you might think the stuffy old Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament are just brought to life if you have that right teacher. And I'm just trying to encourage the audience, and this is a big thing that you're talking about, but just in the sh- small shadow of math, is to make sure to not to ruin the chances of our kids and of our neighbors by thinking math is that old stuffy thing. It is bound with rules, but at the same time, it's incredibly creative to play with. And those rules, you know, all the stuff you learned, Saudi, as a as a you know grade schooler and junior higher and high schooler those things don't go out the window yeah those things aren't just you're not the more you understand math it's not that you're like okay i can reject those fundamentals now no those yeah. like we said last week the the thing with math especially in the early stages of math is it it just builds on itself right it's you need the, you need these f- building blocks to understand this and really the, it's the same way the, yes. it's the Jesus didn't come and say all the all that stuff in the old testament throw that out that right. does that doesn't matter no Jesus he said he said I haven't I haven't come to abolish the law in the prophets I've come to fulfill it in yeah. other words he's saying you just like like Saul the Pharisee you might have under you might have somehow tradition or teachings or whatever maybe your past teachers 
gave you a certain interpretation and they led you down the wrong path. And I'm coming in to say, we're not going to throw that out. I'm going to help you to understand what all of that was pointing to in the first place. I'm trying to help you understand the fulfillment of all the building blocks from the Old Testament. And math works the same way. You're not throwing out those building blocks. You're you're like opening it up to say this is really what this was for. It was for understanding the beauty of this next thing. Yeah, you know, one of the things you talked about, you asked me in the beginning about the usefulness versus beauty. It just this conversation makes me think of Lady Gaga. And, you know, whether you like her music or not, we you you have to admit that she's a gifted musician. And she was trained as a classical musician. And that training of that kind of foundation of the rules of how music works is what she used to build up to take things to the next level to be creative. And when I think of when I think of this kind of notion of playfulness of what she has done with her stuff, you know, mixing this and doing that stuff, uh, we can think about the same playfulness of food. You know, one of my favorite movies in the world is Ratatouille. And Ratatouille, it's about rats, you know, this one rat decides to be a great cook, but uh, because he's gifted and loves it. But, you know, when when that rat, Remy, is describing to his brother on the plane next to him who's locked in that seat and has nowhere to go, and he's describing his joy of cooking, he says, what happens if you now take this piece of cheese and this strawberry and eat them together? And then he's like, oh, yeah, I think I see a new combination coming. And then he says, now imagine every combination of every food and every temperature, you know, cooked in every pot. Wow. And, you know, and he's seen the landscape of what infinity means from a food perspective, you know, the infinite possible. And we've only scratched the surface. And that's true for food. That's true for art. That's true for music. And I just want us to realize that's also true for mathematics. And even something like the twin primes that you brought up early, Bri, is an example of something we can't even begin to scratch the surface of, right? We could just point to it and say, hey, there's something out here. And even if you have an education as a junior high kid, you can still play with twin primes and be at the boundary of mathematics and look over the huge chasm and go, man, I'm right at the edge of the unknown and nobody knows how to play with this stuff yet. Now, when you talk about playing, you you mentioned last week that that you had the ability to create a math studio uh, at your university and help us help us to kind of connect this. You talk about your passion for embodied experience yeah. when it comes to exploring the beauty of math. Talk about what you mean by that, because again, our listeners are like, I've never heard a math person talk like that before. You know, you asked me a question earlier about how math and art fits together. And uh, that was, you know, when I, when I said we're both playful in different ways, I was saying that almost philosophically, you know, I was just throwing it as like an idea. But, but I actually have started, had started working with artists at that time. And I realized that it's not just me thinking that's how art works. They like to think about blue a lot and things like that. But I actually have sat down and, and had coffee. You know, I had a, a, when I was at Stanford for a year on sabbatical, uh, this artist was stationed in, uh, you know, he was living in San Francisco. That's where his studio was. We'd have coffee once a month. And every month we'd get together, uh, um, forgive me, take, I take it back, once a week, and every week we'd get together and talk about unsolved mathematics and ways he can play with unsolved mathematics. And we came up with these three sets of paintings over the course of three years of thinking about how cartography, the way maps are studied, is related to genetics. And we came up with three paintings, a triptych of paintings. Those paintings were taken all over the world for, uh, you know, from Berlin to Pasadena, 
uh, and now they're in a permanent collection in a museum in Minnesota. So that's just, you know, me playing with artists to see how they're thinking. I then started when I came to San Diego, uh, working with people who go to Burning Man. And Burning Man is this massive sculpture showcase that happens uh, in the middle of the desert. And maybe about 10%, I don't know what, I'm just making up numbers, by the way. But, you know, some percent has to do with like, you know, drug use to drinking because you're just all alone, you could do whatever. But most of Burning Man is the nerdiest place you could imagine. What happens, Bri, if you want to build a sculpture, right? But not to not not a sculpture that you can put inside an art museum that's like, you know, five feet tall or seven feet tall. What if you want to build a 50 foot tall sculpture or a 35 foot tall sculpture that lights up with LEDs, right? Like some cre that, whose arms and wings move. One museum in the world might be able to pull that off. And you need to be one of the greatest artists at that time. Like, But what if you just want to play? You got to go to the desert. You got to go somewhere totally wide. They did this in San Francisco by the beach. And within a few years, it turns out that it became so popular that they had to move to the desert. And it is the intersection of engineering, mathematics, art, and design. All of those guys nerd out and they're all checking out each other's stuff. And so we took, we built this uh, 12 foot tall, 18 foot wide wingspan unfolding dodecahedron that has to do with unsolved mathematics. It was lined with 12 feet tall mirrors on the inside. It's you ever gone to Gap and they have those uh, mirrored room where you kind of try on jeans and it looks like there are infinitely many copies of you? And then except instead of a, instead of a cube room or an angle room, it's actually made up a dodecahedron, 12-sided pentagons filled and enclosed. And it's alluding to what the shape of our universe can be. That's, an, that's its own talk for us to get into cosmology and what the shape can be. And also this thing unfolds, which is a huge unsolved math question of whether polyhedra can unfold nicely. So all of these things have been struggling with artists and how they think about beauty and utility. And I, as partly as a teacher and also as a researcher, wanted to bring this into an academic setting. And if you think about it, if I ask anyone listening to the show, hey, have you ever heard of these words? A chemistry lab. And people say, yeah, I remember that. We had that in you know, seventh grade. Maybe we were doing Bunsen burners. And maybe you had in high school, you know, you play with chemistry. Have you heard of a biology lab? Yeah, I mean, we, we cut frogs and we dissected things. You know, I remember doing that kind of stuff. And we looked at microscopes for cells and bacteria. How about a physics lab? Oh, yeah, we dropped tennis balls. You know, and we measured how high they went from gravity and wind resistance and stuff. What about a computer science lab? Even the annoying computer scientists, they have their own lab, right? <laughs> and so it frustrated me that mathematicians didn't have a laboratory to play. Here I was, I was playing in the middle of the desert doing this Burning Man stuff. I was playing with an artist in San Francisco creating paintings, all thinking about unsolved mathematics, just the way we were talking about, about the twin primes, except these were different kind of unsolved mathematics. Um, and I wanted to bring that experience into an academic setting for my students to play with, you know, for me to play with, for my colleagues to play with. You walk in and I go, dude, I didn't know you can play with math with your body. And to me, that was a huge twist, Bri, because over the past hundreds of years, mathematics has advanced so powerfully. We talked about the usefulness of putting a person in Mars or trying to cure cancer or COVID and how math is so important for so many of these things. It has advanced so powerfully in the past several hundred years. My question was the following thing. If math has been so great where your mind has been involved, how much better can it be if your body is also involved? I'm not saying replace one for the other. Going back to the conversation of Jesus, right? Throw away the old. I'm saying, let me show you what else you can do with it. Like what else could happen if your body is also involved in this thing? And I don't know anybody who's asked that question. 
And so I shook some hands and the Fletcher Jones Foundation, a nonprofit, gave us a million dollars to renovate the whole math department here in San Diego. And the centerpiece became this studio. And I called it not a math laboratory because I wanted that playfulness of it. This goes back to the words you said, is like the connection to art. I, want, I called it a math studio as a way that people can go. It is actually a place filled with almost no technology. And the main reason I say that is because we're drowning in technology in so many, even listening to this podcast, right? You could imagine it's this tech world that's, that's there. But I wanted to go to a place where it's just popsicle sticks, toothpicks, paper, you know, just uh, wire. The one main technology we have is a sewing machine, right? It's just, it's just basically all, it's a craft supply store that you had in second grade. And I now wanted to play with unsolved mathematics that way. You know, when we use the word embodied in seminary, we are immediately thinking about, you know, hu the human experience and that we have bodies. That's part of the human makeup. And we think about how Jesus took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. So, so God is spirit, and yet at a moment in time, 2,000 years ago, the incarnation happened, and now Jesus added body. He became embodied. And he, for the Bible even says that he is, he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so we have this picture of embodiment when we, when we talk about, when we talk about Christianity and even our picture of heaven has to do with that as well. So yeah. as we're finishing up here, why don't you speak to that for a second? Because everything you just said about that yeah. math studio, yeah, in essence is kind of a little bit, maybe a picture of what we're going to experience even in heaven. Yeah. The, if you look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographies of Jesus, two of them talk about Jesus' birth, how important it was that God himself, I mean, this is mind-blowing nuts, right? We're actually idiots to even say these kind of words, but like God himself decided to come in a body form. But actually, the other two didn't even talk about it. It's kind of funny, right? You think this is probably one of the greatest things ever we got. And they're like, listen, man, let's get going. Let's, let's start with Jesus, you know, when he's like 28 years old. They kind of it's hit the ground running. But all four of them talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And that's, without a doubt, the punchline of all of the Gospels. And in fact, if you read the Gospels at the end, it is the most important event. To me, it is the most important event in the history of the world. The fact that everything this man, Jesus, said was see, signed with a seal of approval because what he said is actually something you can believe in because he said, I will come back, and he did. Basically, God stamped that sign of approval. That's pretty powerful because now you can actually listen to him more than listening to the Bhagavad Gita, which might be beautiful truths, more than you can listen to the Quran, which also might have beautiful truths. But this somehow is like signed and sealed and delivered with some extra stuff. So the resurrection is cool for that reason. But to me, it's also cool because it's what you said, Bri. Because when he came back, what Jesus was saying is, here's what the future looks like. You know, one of the things mathematicians care about is predictability. Like we want to predict the weather, right? Like we want to predict what the future is based on the current. If it's 70 degrees today and 70 degrees tomorrow, it can't be negative 30 the next day. It's probably going to be 70. We're trying to predict. And the greatest predicting influence Jesus has is, hey, if you want to know what the future looks like, look at me. And so if you look at the resurrection, to me, the great, uh, what I moves me the most, my favorite verse in scripture is Luke 24, 41 and 42. He resurrects. He now comes back to his disciples the first time. He walks through a wall to appear, right? He walks through the door. 
So already you're like, dude, that's a cool thing to have. You know, it's a future thing that's going to, okay, walk him through walls. It's great. But then he does something that's really weird. Because if he just walks through a wall, he's going to be a ghost. He's a spirit. And he might say what a Hindu would say, which is, oh my gosh, thank God that body. That was a great thing to have temporarily. That was kind of actually holding me back is now gone. And I can be one with a bigger thought, like a Buddhist would say, right? Like I've reached nirvana in a thought. But Jesus didn't say that. He actually comes back, walks through a wall, and you're thinking he might be the Hindu perspective of this. But then he says, do you have any food? So he asks for fish. They're like, wait, what? (laughs) And they give him fish. He sits down and he eats the fish. It's totally remarkable. And then right afterwards, we see that not only has he been eating the fish, he goes, hey, do you guys want to touch my hands, touch my feet? Like, this is the real thing. To me, what really moves me about this, Bri, is that the future, what we're going to put our chips on, what we're willing to trust our life into, whatever we might think the future is. To me, if you take the Judeo-Christian faith seriously, the future is going to be a physical future. Now, it might not look exactly like this because Jesus did walk through a wall and something's up, right? But somehow the physical world matters. And to me, the reason I wanted it, time back to the math studio, the reason I wanted a place to touch and play with mathematics is because it will last. If only the mind is going to last, if it's only going to be a Hindu Buddhist perspective of disembodiment, then mathematics is rocking it as we speak, right? You could sit back, have a cigar, and think about twin primes, you know, as you sleep against a tree. But really, if math is going to hold its weight in the future, then it needs to be embodied somehow. And so I'm just... I'm in a dumb, silly, stupid way, trying to make sense of what that could look like if math did have arms and legs. You know, Sadi, again, we said at the beginning of of our time today that this is, we're going to be talking a lot about math, but we're really going to make sure to make the connection to God. And we've made it along the way. And I hope our listeners, especially, you know, we started this little mini series of topics, Sadi, for specifically for the skeptic, maybe for a math nerd, maybe not, but for a skeptic who says, I'm too smart for God. Uh, I'm, I'm not interested in God. I don't know if he has anything for me. And I hope that those people are still listening. And I hope that they're recognizing how, you know, faith, as with math, is more than you think. It's greater than you think. It's not just about what it can do for you. I used to preach this. I I still do. Anytime I preach on the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful. And I always underline the word useful. And I tell, especially the guys out there, whenever I preach, I'm always thinking about the men because the women are going to come anyway. It's the men that are maybe maybe a little bit on the sidelines saying, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm into this God thing. I think there's, there's pride in us. There's arrogance that sometimes keeps us from opening our eyes to the fullness of what God has to offer. But I used to always look at that verse and say, look, guys, look, man, but the Bible's useful. Christianity's useful. You should follow God because it's useful. And I'm repenting of that right now, because even though that is true, that scripture's useful, even though it is true that God is, that God is useful, that following Jesus is useful, and it really will change your life. It'll change all those fundamentals, the axioms, all that stuff. It's useful. More than that, I think the better verse for people to hear today is Psalm 29 two. Give unto the Lord the glory, do unto his name, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And the whole idea there is he is worthy of your worship, not just because it's useful for you, 
not just because it'll give you something or you're going to benefit some way practically in this world, but you should worship him because he's beautiful. And, and I hope if you have ears to hear it, if you have eyes to see it, boy, I would pray that today anyone who's listening to this would really receive what we're saying and would want to continue to pursue the God who is worth pursuing because he's beautiful, not just useful. Saudi, I'm going to give you the last word. Well, almost everything we hold important in our world is usually not because of utility, but because of beauty. If I think about college experiences, right, like you and me and your brother, I remember this one time we had a, a friend in sitting in front of us who dropped his pencil. And he spent the whole lecture trying to pick up his pencil with his foot. And he couldn't do it. And Mark and I, your brother, were crying during the whole lecture to the point that Mark had to excuse himself in the middle of class so he can cry in the hallway of joy. And I'm, there's nothing there that was useful at all. But that's a memory I remember. I mean, if I think back to the lectures that our great math teachers gave us, I don't think I can really remember a real useful lecture or like, oh my gosh, now I see how that deep math principle is. I remember the way, you know, this girl's hair smelled. I remember the way we had pizza together. I remember the way, you know, when I first learned to, you know, play basketball and actually made a couple of shots. Remember, all those memories have been these deeply embodied, beautiful things. And they're not these disembodied knowledge drain downloads. And more than any faith that I know of, and we can maybe talk about this next time, I feel like the Christian faith is the one that really values this notion of beauty and embodiment. Yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about next time. So I hope you'll join. I hope everyone will join us next time. We're going to talk about why this math genius believes in God. And we really want to make sure to land. We're going to talk a little bit more about God and faith than about math. So if, if some of you are listeners, maybe you're going through this little series with somebody, with a small group or with a friend, I really encourage you to tune in to topic number three in this series, because this is where we're going to get, we're going to do some, what we would call apologetics. This is where we're going to really talk about why is God worth believing in? Why do, why does someone as smart as Saudi, Dr. Devados, why does someone that smart of all the options in the world, of all the faith options, why do you follow Jesus? Tune in next time because we're going to talk about that next and find all this at pursuegod.org forward slash math. Hey, listeners, this is Brian Dwyer reminding you to rate this show on your favorite podcast app. That really does help us when you do that. That way more people can discover this podcast and start listening. And also, don't forget to share the podcast with a friend.